2 Samuel 19. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16 tonight, but we probably should look at you know, why we're in the middle of a chapter. Remember David's son Absalom, he you know, uh, conspired against David and uh, convinced a lot of these leaders to join him and took the throne. David fled. A civil war ensued. When we get to verse 16, the civil war is done. Uh, Absalom is dead. David has been invited back to Jerusalem by the leaders of the tribe of Judah. Um, so, I mean, it looks like things are good. But the truth is, uh, things aren't all peachy in Israel. Uh, many exist who are in powerful positions amongst the tribes who uh, did not support David or Absalom. They don't like either of them. You know, so there's some who aren't excited about David coming back. And of course, you know, we have this uh, challenge where how will the other tribes of Israel react when it's Judah who's bringing David back to the throne? You know, will they go along with it or will they say, no, we, you're just one tribe? And, and so we, we look through this chapter, we're going to see David, he's, he's trying to do things, you know, the right way, he's trying to handle things graciously as he's trying to move back into his position, uh, but the reality is that David's sin brought a deep divide to the nation, and it's one that changes the course of its history forever. So chapter 2, verse 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, and Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, which was of uh, Bahurim, he hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they went over Jordan before the king. We're going to see David have three meetings or interactions with people as he's crossing the Jordan River and, and, and kind of making his way back to Jerusalem. And uh, the first one here is with this gentleman, uh, Shimei. Now, when we see and Shimei in verse 16, obviously and means there's something else it's attached to. And we need to go back to verse 15 to understand. Verse 15 says, so the king, David, he returned and he came to Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to conduct the king over the, the Jordan River, uh, the crossing of the river. So uh, this is added to the fact that men from the tribe of Judah traveled to meet David at the Jordan River crossing to escort him back home to Jerusalem as king. Now, Shimei, he comes with them. He hasted. I mean, he's in a hurry to get there, and he, he's there with the, basically the welcoming party uh, from Judah to bring David back home. Now, if you know your Bible, or if you remember from our previous studies, who's Shimei? Well, this is the guy who was throwing rocks at David and his men uh, when he fled from Absalom. He's cursing his name and bringing down God's, calling God's judgment upon David. And so seeing this guy who's a Benjamite from the family of Saul, I mean, he's a, he's a distant relative, uh, but he's a relative of Saul, uh, who is, you know, now paired with the tribe of Judah, it's kind of an odd pairing because you've got, you know, one guy who cursed David and another whole group of guys who they backed to be honest, Absalom for the most part. So it, it, it's a bit of an interesting group that's here. And then you kind of add to the fact that Shimei is bringing a hundred men with him, you know, and you, you start to, like if I'm David, I kind of start to wonder, uh, are they coming out to fight me? Because you know? <laughs> this, this is not a group that would be normally characterized as in the recent events on David's side. And so, you know, we have to get to verse 17 to know what in the world's going on here? It says there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, but then it mentions that Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his sons and servants were also with him. And they went over Jordan uh, in the presence of the king. So they're not here for battle. They're not here to oppose David. They're here to support him. Uh, and we see that because of this other person who's with him, Ziba. Remember, Ziba is Saul's former head servant uh, who David had put him in charge of caring for Saul's estate when he granted um, to Saul's, uh, Saul Jonathan's lone surviving son, Mephibosheth. He granted him his father's lands, uh, his grandfather's lands. Well, remember Ziba, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, he had brought food and travel animals and other supplies to help David escape from Absalom. So, you know, 
as one of the few people who helped David when he fled, it makes sense he would be there with his entire family to welcome David back. But it is kind of confusing why these other folks are here. Now, we know from earlier in chapter 19 that David's already kind of made a deal with the people of Judah, so that's not a surprise. Um, he has said, hey, you know, why haven't you welcomed me back yet? He's like, will not I make Amasa, who is Absalom's captain, I'll make him captain of my army? You know, we can, we can compromise here. I'm, I realize you were upset with the way I handled some things, but I, I can work with you. So he had kind of struck a deal with them, and so that's why they're there. But it does still beg the question, why in the world is Shimei here? You know, and why is he trying to be one of the first people to greet David? Well, verse 18 explains. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household, David's family. And so when it came back to do... Uh, uh, to do what he thought good. So while this is going on, it says, Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan. So David, then he, you know, he, he crosses over and Shimei falls down on his face. And he says unto the king, let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which your servant did perversely uh, the day that my Lord, the king, went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart." David's family, they've already gone over on the ferry. David's getting on the ferry to join them. But Shimei uh, stops him because he falls down before him and he makes two requests. The first one, he says, is do not impute, he says, iniquity unto me. The word imputed just means to credit to someone's account. And iniquity here means guilt, a judicial state of being liable or wrong for what was done. Uh, first, he's saying, please don't credit what I did to my legal account. Please don't see me as guilty, someone guilty for wrongdoing. Give me, please give me a pardon. It's what he's asking for. Give me a pardon. You know, sometimes the presidents, they leave office, they give pardons. You know, it's pretty much what he's asking for here. Can I get a pardon? You know? But the second request he makes here, he says also, he says, um, neither do thou remember that which your servant did perversely uh, the day you were fleeing from Jerusalem. And he says that the king should take it to his heart. Uh, perversely, it means that which is morally contrary to what is just and right. He says, secondly, you know, please first give me a pardon, but secondly, he says, please don't remember the wicked, twisted things I said and did when you were on the run from your son. Now, the first makes sense. In that culture, when you side with one person or side against one person and they end up winning, uh, it, not just you, but usually you and your entire family are dead people walking uh, unless you get a pardon. And so he is there at the first to, to fall down and ask for one. Um, everyone with David saw what he did and said, and so he does not try to say he didn't do anything wrong. He just asked for a pardon. That makes sense. But to be honest, the second request is almost offensive. Forget what you said? Treat you like you didn't throw rocks at me? Like you didn't call God's judgment down upon me and, my and all of my family? <laughs> and yet, isn't that what God has done for us when we repent and place our trust in Christ? He doesn't. He puts it out of his mind. He says, my sin, their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. It's exactly what God does. God doesn't just pardon us. He justifies us. He makes it just as if I'd never sinned. And he wipes the slate clean. Shimei, though, is asking a lot of someone who's not the Lord. He's asking a lot of David here. But I do think it shows a repentant, a repentant heart on his behalf. You know, here we see a man who has great influence in Benjamin, and he could have used that influence to resist David's return to the throne. The fact that he's got a thousand other men from Benjamin with him shows the influence that he has. But he doesn't do that. Instead, before he's even honest with David to say these things, that means he had to be honest with himself. He had to conclude that while he, David was not perfect, what he had accused David of was unjust. What he had accused him of is trying to kill Saul and wiping out Saul's family. And David had done nothing but good to Saul and to Saul's family. And so this acknowledgement here by saying, I was the perverse one here. The things I said were twisted. They were off. They weren't even correct. By acknowledging that, he makes 
Not just forgiveness, but real restoration, a possibility when you do that with somebody. doesn't mean it'll work out, but at least you make it a possibility. If you're unwilling to recognize that you've done anything wrong, it makes restoration very hard. And so I do think there's some genuineness here with him. Verse 20, we see an even further uh, confession from him. He says in verse 20, for your servant does know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the King. Here we see the acknowledgement. I did something horribly wrong. I did something that is, is unjust. It was unfair. The things I said weren't true. The sin is on me. It's no one else's fault but my own. And he explains, that's why I've come before any of the other tribes of uh, the house of Joseph, he says. Uh, this is why I'm the first here from all the other tribes besides Judah to welcome you back. Because David, I'm a different person than the one who threw rocks at you and cursed you. So please grant these two requests of mine. Now, I don't know if he's genuine. We're going to find out later on in the story that he's going to have some conflict with David's son Solomon when Solomon becomes king. So I don't know, but he seems genuine here. He seems to be proclaiming, I'm a different person, and it seems like he may very well be. He mentions here, he calls the other tribes the house of Joseph, and that's an interesting phrase. Um, After Saul died, Judah had asked David to be their new king. None of the other tribes did. All the other tribes, they chose Saul's son Ishbosheth to be their new king. And of course, another civil war broke out. But that's the beginning of kind of these two factions in Israel. Um, you have this southern faction led by the tribe of Judah, and then you have this northern faction led by, well, to be honest, no particular tribe stands out. But the largest of all those tribes was Ephraim, one of Joseph's sons. So very frequently, you will find these northern tribes calling themselves Ephraim or the house of Joseph. Um, What I personally find to be very interesting is that when the nation does split into two kingdoms under David's grandson, uh, Rehoboam, when it splits finally, that factional divide, when it finally becomes a real divide, a full divide, guess who is the only tribe who joins with Judah? Benjamin of all the tribes, the tribe of King Saul, the tribe that seemed to be constantly at odds with David and always accusing him of problems. They're the ones that actually go and side with Judah. And so despite some future, future issues that Benjamin will have under King David with David, uh, generally Benjamin's attitude toward David is going to change from antagonism to support. And I, I do think that Shimei's actions here is kind of the start of that movement of generally they were bitter at David, and I think this is where that starts to change. Now, you and I both know that Shimei didn't just throw rocks at David. He took advantage of David when he was in a rough situation. He publicly called out David and accused David, saying that this was God's judgment upon his life because of his own sin against Saul and Saul's family. And so when Shimei comes and begs for his life and begs not just for a pardon, but for restoration, Uh, David's nephew speaks up to object to any pardon for this guy. Verse 21, it says, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, he answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he had cursed the Lord's anointed? Now, remember, Abishai is the other side of that Joab, you know, brother relationship with David, David's two nephews. Um, And so he explains, he goes, you know, you can't pardon this guy. You can't do anything but kill him, you know, because he cursed the Lord's anointed. Now, what's the Lord's anointed? That word, someone that is the anointed one, it means a person who's been chosen by God to have special authority in his people's lives. Um, The title was used in the Old Testament to refer to God's prophets and to Israel's kings. What's interesting is in Psalm 105, verse 15, probably the verse that's most quoted about this concept of the Lord's anointed, um, it actually uses it to refer to the patriarchs as well. In Psalm 105, 15, it it says, um, well, verse 14, he, the Lord, suffered no man to do them, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, wrong. Yea, he reproved even kings for their sake, saying, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Uh, Unfortunately, from this idea of God choosing individuals to have special authority in His people's lives, 
um, a view developed that if you ever critique one of those individuals, it's, it's like invoking divine harm from God on your life. However, when we read this passage in Psalm 105, it's not saying that. He's talking about here how God preserved the patriarchs who were in a weak position compared to kings and other authority figures in that day, and how He preserved them from those who sought to oppose them when God had called them to the land. That's the context. I bring this up because this incorrect view that Abishai is espousing here is often used today to say that pastors or evangelists or you know preachers or you know talk show hosts you call whatever any Christian that has some type of influence in the Christian community or leadership position in the Christian community um, that they aren't allowed to be critiqued or confronted when they do wrong. You know, I, I've very frequently heard people say, "Oh, you can't say that. You can't touch the Lord's anointed." And I'm like, "I'm going to do more and touch them if you keep talking." First off, pastors are not kings or prophets or the patriarchs. Although some may think they are. We are none of those things. And secondly, while it would be wrong to publicly slander anyone, the Scriptures tell us that we're to go talk to a brother or a sister one-on-one if they do us wrong, right? Well, that doesn't change if they're a pastor or an evangelist or a church leader. That doesn't change, you know? I am so grateful for some of the people who have pulled me aside after a sermon or after they saw me, you know, uh, say something and, and pulled me aside and say, hey, you know, I, you know, the Bible says this and, you know, you said this. And I'm so grateful for the things that people have pointed out in my life, you know? I need that just like you need that. Now, I, I do want to say this. Please be nice to your pastors. <laughs> Their lives are in a fishbowl, much more so than many other people. And some of the complaints I've heard against pastors are brutally unkind. Brutally unkind. That being said, no church leader should ever develop the attitude that Abishai has here. He critiqued you. He said something negative about you. He cursed you, whatever. He should die. (laughs) Because the reality is this. David, Shimei may have been way off in his accusations. David was not guilty of wrongdoing against Saul's family. But David wasn't above critique. He had real failures. And the prophet Nathan confronted him about those failures. And you know, David received it. He didn't say, why are you touching the Lord's anointed? He didn't have one of his cronies come up and go, don't touch the Lord's anointed. David received it. And that's how we're all supposed to operate when we blow it. That's how you're supposed to operate when someone blows it. You know, Nathan didn't go and put it up on Facebook and go, look at what David did. You know, David committed adultery and he killed the the husband to cover it up. And everybody needs to know, you know, because, you know, people need to know these things. That is not biblical. That's not. The Bible says very clearly, if your brother or sister sins against you, you go to them one-on-one. You say, but they're in a position of authority, and I'm not. Yeah, which means God's going to hold them more accountable if they don't respond well. You say, well, that's not fair. I say, welcome to Christianity. Christianity is not the United States of America, American dream, where everything's supposed to be fair, and everybody's free, and everything's supposed to work out the way you want. We're a group of sinners, and we blow it. All of us. Jesus set up a system in place. If somebody blows it against you, you don't go talk to somebody else about it. You go talk to them. And if they don't listen to you and they talk to them, then you go get another person. And then the two of you try to win them over. The heart is always to win them over, no matter how hurt you are. It's always to win them to repentance. And then if they still don't respond, you bring it before the church. So how can I bring it before the church if they're the pastor or they're the the leader of the women's ministry or the leader of this or the leader of that? It's really simple. You walk out the door. And the reality is, is God will be the one that deals with them. And He'll deal with them heavy. So many times I've seen things that were off and they were wrong. 
And, 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 and you think, man, you know, this is just not good. People are here, people are leaving, and this and that. You don't, you have to, people say, well, that's abusive, or that's wrong, or that's whatever. Well, then why on earth did God himself say in the book of Revelation that I've given Jezebel space to repent? Yeah, but other people will get hurt. Again, welcome to Christianity. That doesn't make it okay. That's not my point. And I'm not trying to empower people who abuse their authority. That's not my point either. But the reality is, if God Himself is the one who gave Jezebel space to repent, the point is, is He's trying to get that person to repent. He's trying to call them to repentance, which is why He doesn't just bust them right out. I remember as a, as a young Christian, I would see all these you know, pastors falling and everything. I'm like, God, why? Why, like, why don't you just bust them right away in the first affair? You know, why, don't you, why don't you expose them right away when the first time it happens? I remember the Lord very gently saying, do you want me to treat you like that? Oh, no, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, I'm not a church leader. That's my kid, just like you're my kid. I'm trying to win them back. I'm trying to bring them back. It'll get to a point where I have to expose them, but just like you, I'm trying to bring them back. There have been ministries that we've been, me and Bev have been a part of or we've supported, and when they've gone off the deep end or they've abused their authority or they've mistreated people, we've gone the other direction. I'm not going to support that anymore. I'll let God deal with you. But at the same time, cannot have Abishai's mindset. Nobody's above being questioned. Nobody's above, I'm not, you've got a problem with me, come tell me. I'm, I'm, no, I'm nobody different than anybody else. I don't have a position that can't be questioned or I can't have somebody speak to me about my behavior. You see me mistreating my wife, tell me. You see me mistreating my kids, tell me. You know, you see me not acting like I'm supposed to act, you know, tell me as a brother or sister who cares about me wants to see me walk right with the Lord in those areas. Just in the same way, if I see you doing that, I, you know, I'm going to try to gently minister to you and say, hey, you know, don't, don't talk to your spouse like that. Like I see kids all the time, and I'm like, hey, don't, don't, don't sass your mom like that. You know, your mom just said it's time to go. You know, right answer is yes, mom. You know, they look at me, and I'm like, tell your mom yes, mom. They're like, yes, mom? <laughs> Who's this dude, you know? You know what? I mean, I'm not doing that because the kids annoy me. I'm doing it because I care about them. You know, in the same way, you know, that's how we're supposed to look to each other. The goal is restoration, repentance, because that's what I need when I'm in sin. That's what I need when I'm, I'm, I'm away from the Lord. I'm not handling something right. So, you know, the Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So it None of us should ever think we're above critique. Certainly those who are in leadership should never think it. Never. And so David, he distances himself from Abishai's viewpoint. I love David, verse 22. He says, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be adversaries unto me? I love this response. This is the second time that David has used this phrase with Joab and Abishai. When he says, What have I to do with you? It means, I have nothing in common with how you're thinking or feeling right now. We are on two completely different pages. Two completely different pages. And then he calls them Little Satans. Seriously, that's what the word adversaries here is in Hebrew. Look it up. It's just Satan. That's what it is. He calls, he calls him and Joab. Joab Joab's probably like, what I do? You know? And then, don't ask. I can answer that very easily. What have I to do with you? You know, that you should this day be Satans unto me. Adversaries. It means one who slanders or accuses someone else. In other words, he's saying... By you suggesting that I respond to the situation like this, you slander my name worse than Shimei has. You misrepresent me completely. Because my heart right now isn't anything close to vengeful. It is filled with gratitude that I'm king again. Filled with gratitude at the mercy and grace that God has brought me back to the kingdom. 
You know, it's interesting, Jesus used similar language in Luke 9, 51 through 56. Remember, you know, Jesus said he, he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. Remember? I mean, he's just like, I am, it's time to go to the cross. I'm going, even though there's opposition and death and suffering awaits me there. I, I am, that is my goal. And so he, as he's on his way, they have to go through Samaria and they come through this village and he sends the disciples in to, you know, secure rooms for them. And they come back and like, hey, they don't, they know you're headed to Jerusalem and because you're, you're hanging out with the Judeans, they don't want anything to do with you. They're not, they're, they're not going to host you. And so I don't know if, you know, maybe, you know, Jesus was like, ah, bummer, you know, or whatever. I don't know what his response was, but John pipes up and he's like, hey, uh, you want me and James, my brother? You know, we're, we're, we're kind of in, in alignment with this, but this, we came up with this plan. You want us to call down fire from heaven, just wipe them all out? And I love Jesus. He goes, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Like, you, you don't even know where this idea comes from. But it doesn't come from me. That's not my heart in this situation. If you think you've read my heart correctly, you need to get a re-education on how to read. Because that's not my heart completely. The Son of Man has not come to destroy. My focus is on rescuing people right now. That's where my heart's at. That's where my mind's at. You aren't even close to where my heart is at right now. And so, you know, it, it brings up an important question. Do I rep misrepresent Jesus with what I say? Is my heart in line with Jesus' heart when I speak and when I act? You know, the Bible tells us that misrepresenting Jesus cost Moses entry into the promised land, right? That, that's, that was his problem. And so God takes that very seriously, which means, you know, these are the types of questions, especially if you are a leader, if you have a visible, you know, platform for your faith. Um, he takes it seriously. It means you need to ask yourself regularly, am I properly representing, representing Jesus with what I say? Is my heart in line with Jesus' heart when I speak and when I act? And, and when you do that, you need to be honest with yourself and you need to repent immediately You know, if you find things that are not properly representing Jesus. Even if that means laying down a cause you think is worthy. In verse 23, David then says that to Shimei, Therefore the king said unto Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore unto him. He made an oath saying, this is official. I'm not going to kill you. I give you a pardon. Um, because David, the therefore, because his heart's not anything like Abishai's, David says, yeah, I'll give you a pardon. And he confirmed his words with an oath. That's about as serious a pardon as a man could receive. But if you'll notice, David does not answer Shimei's second request with a yes. He does not say that he will put it out of his mind. David does not forgive him even though he pardons him. And we will see the results of that later on because when David's on his deathbed, you know, you need to start like cueing the Godfather music, you know, because when David's on his deathbed, he's like, Solomon, don't let Shimei's gray head go down to the grave in peace, you know? He's like, make sure he goes down with bloodshed, you know? He did not forgive him for what he did in this moment of, of weakness. And so, in one way, David is like Jesus, but in the other way, he's not. And so he's unfortunately an example of how we often are, um, and therefore an example of how we need to be less like him and more like Jesus. And so let's strive to be those who are like Jesus without holding on to anything of our old life, you know, without holding anything back, uh, even when it's hard and even when it hurts. Matthew, uh, Matthew. For 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 24, we see David's next meeting. It mentions in verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. So it came to pass when he was come, that's a bad translation, it says to Jerusalem, it should say from Jerusalem. When he was come from Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So Mephibosheth, he, he all of a sudden comes down. He gets there after this big group that includes Shimei and thousand Benjamites and all the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Ziba and all his servants. And all of a sudden, you know, as David's, you know, coming across the river, here comes Mephibosheth down and, uh, and, and, and he, he's a wreck. I mean, like he comes down and it tells us here, it says he, he had not uh, dressed his feet. He hadn't washed his feet. So his feet are just caked in, in, in grime. Uh, uh, he has not, it says, trimmed 
trimmed his beard. He hasn't washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day he came back. I mean, he's been wearing the same stuff he was wearing the night he found out David had to leave Jerusalem. So, I mean, he comes down and who's that dude, you know? And, and he just, he, he, he's a mess. And, and when he gets there, David, even though he's a mess, he says to him, he goes, why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? He says his name. Um, these were deep signs of mourning that he's showing here. There's, you know, he hasn't taken a bath. I mean, it's, it's, these are things that people did when they were grieving. Um, and, and so David's a bit confused at his arrival, though, because remember, Ziba told him when he asked where Mephibosheth was, he says, well, he, he thinks this is his opportunity to take the throne, to get his father's throne back. So David's confused, and he asks him, he goes, why, why didn't you go with me, man? Why didn't you support me in exile? Why did you stay in Jerusalem? Why didn't you do anything to help me this entire time? I thought we were close. I mean, there's an intimacy to his question here. You know, it's an honest question, a very wounded question. David had treated Mephibosheth like a king, even though back in those days you killed everybody associated with a rival. And yet you can feel, sense the feeling of betrayal in David's question especially after Ziba had accused Mephibosheth of refusing to help David because he wanted to become king in David's place when the civil war all played out. These are hard questions, even though Mephibosheth's appearance seems to contradict Ziba's accusations. Mephibosheth, he, he answers, he doesn't gum up, he answers David's question, honestly and straightforwardly. He says, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. By saying, my Lord, O King, he's making it clear, I got no desire for your throne, David. My servant, he's referring to Ziba, he betrayed me. That's what the word deceived here means. He betrayed me. For your servant said, so in other words, when I got the news of what was going on, I told him to saddle me a donkey so I could ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. He, 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 is not, he's, he doesn't have the ability to walk. And so he had told Ziba, he said, go put my donkey, I want to go with David. And apparently what Mephibosheth is saying is that Ziba, even though he was given the order, Ziba disobeyed and took advantage of the situation to better his own position with David. Verse 27, and he has slandered, it means to speak words that harm someone else's reputation. He has slandered me, said things that would harm my reputation with you. He has slandered your servant unto my Lord the King. And so, now it's Mephibosheth's word against Ziba's word. But the problem is, there's been a lot of months between that night and today. And David, he's not quite sure who to believe. And so when David doesn't say anything, there's a semicolon there, which means a pause. Mephibosheth's waiting for an answer, and, and David says nothing. And so Mephibosheth continues, verse 27, but, so in other words, if you don't believe me, but, my lord the king, this is an angel of God. Do therefore whatever is good in your eyes. For all of my father's house were, all, were but dead men before my lord the king. And yet, did you set your servant among them which eat at your own table? What right therefore do I have to, to cry, to complain, or make requests anymore unto the king? You've already treated me better than I deserve. He says, David, you're like one of God's messengers to me. And so I trust you're going to seek the Lord again and that you'll do the right thing concerning me because that's what you've always done concerning me. The Bible does not tell us what really happened. Because of Mephibosheth's humility and because of his physical appearance of seeming to have mourned the entire time, I'm inclined to believe him over Ziba. I lean that way. But it does still leave the question of why he did nothing to help David during the Civil War. Why not even send a letter, a messenger, somebody to say, hey, David, I support you. I'm just in a bad spot right now. It goes to say that there are right ways to handle bad situations or when you've been wronged, and that sitting around crying about it for months is not the right way. It's not the right way to handle that. In James 4.17, it's interesting scripture, it says to him, that doesn't look like the verse I want. 
Oh, that's 117. 417, there we go. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him, not to everybody else, but to him, it is sin. What does that mean? It, it quite simply means this. In these types of difficult situations, knowing exactly what to do at all times may be hard, may be difficult. You may really stumble at trying to figure out what to do exactly at every moment. But even when that's the case, there is always a general path forward. For example, I have found myself in situations as a pastor where someone has uh, handled, mishandled something. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to just like call them up and blast them. I like to like get them in front of me and they can see my face and know I don't hate them and, you know, whatever, you know. So how do I handle this, Lord? And, and you know, and so as I'm kind of wrestling back and forth about how to handle it, you know, day goes by, another day goes by, another day goes And before you know it, a week's gone by and you've done nothing. And very frequently in those moments when I'm wrestling about what to do, the Lord's just like, just call them and see how they're doing. Tell them you love them. And I'm like, yeah, but Lord, no, I can't, you know, I, I, I need to address this and I don't know how to address it. And, you know, and the Lord is just, you know, you see specific scriptures just come up that I know I'm supposed to do no matter what. And in those times when I have not responded to that very clear, general, I should always act this way, because I'm not sure about specifically how to handle the specific situation that's going on, every time I've ignored what I know I'm supposed to do, generally, I've always gotten in trouble. Always gotten in trouble. And I've regretted a lot of those decisions. And so, not knowing what to do exactly, <laughs> instead of doing the simple, general right things that the Scripture tells us to do, I've I do nothing and then I end up making the situation worse. Don't do that. Don't make those mistakes. Learn from my mistakes. Learn from Mephibosheth's mistakes. Now, David does seem to believe that Ziba maybe wasn't at least fully honest with him because he revises his earlier decree. Verse 29, David says, and the king said unto, well, it says, and the king said unto him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba pardon me, divide the land. The phrase there, why are you trying to explain things more to me? Why, that's what it means anymore. Why are you trying to give more explanations? Haven't I already given a word concerning you? That's what it means. Have not I spoken on the matter? Have not I given a decree concerning you? So we don't have a record of the decree, but uh, the specific words of David, we just have the fact here that he had concluded, you and Ziba divide the land. So this new decree, while it may not seem fair to Mephibosheth, uh, because David can't prove who's telling the truth, he just declares, well, instead, I originally gave it all to Ziba, well, now you're just going to split it. He's going to get half the land, and you'll get half the land. And so um, this clears Mephibosheth's name, at least, uh, and it also kind of tells Ziba, don't even think about trying anything funny again. But while they divide the land, uh, I think Mephibosheth comes out of it with a better reputation, which, again, I think he's the one telling the truth here because it seems... Like that's all that mattered to him. Look at verse 30. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yeah, well, let him take it all. For as much as my lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house. The only thing that he cared about was David, his friend, was safe. David, his friend, was home. And his kingdom restored. And so in this case, you know, if I'm right about Ziba being in the wrong and taking advantage of Mephibosheth's disability... Mephibosheth may be left losing out half of his land, but Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. And you know, I have had opportunities in my life where there were things I could step out and do that were kind of, I don't know about this, and then the obvious decision of retaining my good name. And I will tell you, I, I wouldn't trade any of those decisions ever, you know, for my good name, my good reputation, and neither should you. Well, the third meeting that David has is uh, here in verse 31. 
It's with this guy Barzillai. And it says, And in Barzillai, the Gileadite, he came down from Rogalim, and he went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, even fourscore, eighty years old, and he had provided the king uh, of sustenance while he lay at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. And the king said unto Barzillai, Come over with me. Come, come thou over with me, and I'll feed you with me in Jerusalem. Now, we know back from uh, when the civil war started with Absalom that Barzillai was the leader of a city near Mahanaim. Mahanaim was where David kind of made his capital during the civil war. And he was one of those three leaders who had helped David get back on his feet when he had fled Jerusalem. He brought supplies, he, you know, he, 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 he supported him politically, uh, all these things. We know he's a very wealthy man, an influential man, and David is so grateful for that support. He, he knew he wouldn't be in the spot he is now if it hadn't been for guys like Barzillai. And so as Barzillai is kind of escorting him home, he goes, why don't you come all the way to Jerusalem with me, man? He goes, let me take care of you. You know, let, let me bless you. Bring, make, bring you part of my council. Bring you in, you know, to the palace. And, and, and you can have the, the best life ever. You, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. And Barzillai, I love his response. He says unto the king, how long do I have to live that I should go up with the king into Jerusalem? I am this day four score years old. I'm 80 years old today. And can I discern between good and evil? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? Because I'm old, dude. <laughs> I don't want to make the journey all the way to Jerusalem. You know, my life, my remaining life is too short to spend it in the palace. You know, and I love, he's like, what would I do there? He's like, I'm too senile to be a counselor. My taste buds are too shot to enjoy your fancy dinners. My hearing's too shot to enjoy the celebrations. Let me go home and enjoy it with my family and friends my last few days. He says, verse 36, your servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay it, uh, recompense at me with such a reward? Why would, I, I did this because it was the right thing to do. You don't, you don't owe me anything. Let your servant, verse 37, I pray you, turn back again, that I may die in my own city and be buried by the grave of my father and my mother. But then he does make a request. He goes, maybe you could take someone in my, else in my place. Behold, your servant Chimham, let him go over with my lord the king, and do to him what shall seem good unto you. Now, Josephus, he's a, a Jewish historian, really, he's a Roman historian, he's a Jewish man working with the Romans. Uh, he, when he did his commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, uh, he said that Chimham was uh, Barzillai's son. Uh, but the language gives no indication of that. He is likely one of Barzillai's, you know, probably closest friends, highest ranking officials, a younger guy, someone who could actually be a benefit to David. He goes, this guy, he can help you out. You want him there, not me. I'm done. He goes, but this guy's got lots of good years left, lots of good miles left on his tires. And so, verse 38, the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do to him that which shall seem good unto you, not to me, but good to you, and whatsoever you shall require of me, that will I do for you. And so all the people went over Jordan, and when the king was come over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and then he went home. He returned to his own place. I love that David is truly grateful for those who have supported him and those who have helped him. And it brings up a question, you know, am I grateful for those who have supported and helped me? Um, I wish this was not true, but I've done this for 25 years. And I've been in church, involved in church leadership for over, almost 30 years. And it is with great sadness that I can say I've seen many who I thought loved me, and I love them very much, and they received much help from us or from the church or other people in the church. And all it took was one mistake or one failure, and they were gone without a word to anybody or with lots of nasty words to everybody. Am I truly grateful for those who have supported and helped me? Or do I forget them once I don't need their assistance anymore? In 2 Timothy 3.2, it says that in the end times, the perilous times, it says men will be unthankful. 
And so let's not be those who are unthankful. Let's be those who are grateful. Well, I've got to try to race through these last few verses because we're almost out of time. Then the king went on to Gilgal. Gilgal is about two miles east of Jericho, so they're still in the Jordan Valley side, or inside the Jordan Valley. The king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah conducted the king, and also half the people of Israel. I, I don't know when these guys showed up, but apparently these guys finally got there. I don't know if this means half of the other tribes are represented, or half the population, or half of the leaders. It really doesn't uh, indicate for us what it means exactly. Uh, all it does say, though, is that David only had half the support of the nation uh, when he's escorted back to Jerusalem, which, of course, creates new conflicts. And so in verse 41, it says, And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king. So this other group who showed up, they come to the king, and they said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and have brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? You know, um, While David's still at Gilgal, uh, those who had been initially missing, you know, they, they, they accused the king you know, why, why didn't you notify us? You know, why, why are they, you know, getting special treatment here? You know, why do they get to bring you back? We, we wanted to bring you back too. And they basically accused the tribe of Judah of trying to steal the spotlight and maybe even David of being complicit. <clears throat> you know, that's interesting because back in verse 9 of 9, chapter 19, after David won the war, there was a lot of debate in Israel over whether or not they wanted David to be their king still. But what mattered most to David was that the civil war was instigated by members of his own tribe, Judah. And his thought was, if they don't lead in bringing me back, we're going to have problems, big problems. My own tribe doesn't support me. And so David initially reached out to the leaders of Judah, and he kind of chided them for not taking the lead in bringing him back, and he offered him a carrot. Absalom's general Amasa, he can become my general, we, we can compromise here. And so Judah, when they heard this, they jumped at the opportunity, and they didn't invite anyone else to join them in escorting David. So there's a legitimate beef here that the other tribes have that they weren't involved in this process. But when the accusation comes, instead of recognizing their failure, Judah doesn't back down. Look at verse 42. And all the men of Judah, they answered the men of Israel, why did you do this? Well, they answered, because the king's near of king to us. Why then would you be angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's at the king's cost, or has he given us any gift? <laughs> they make two justifications for their behavior. Number one, they said, "Well, we have more claim to David than any other tribe. He's from our tribe." And that is a line that's going to get the line of David in trouble, because it's going to be thrown back at David's grandson when the ten tribes break away and form their own kingdom. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16, they use this exact phrase. In 1 Kings 12, 16, nope, that's not right. That's 2 Kings. 1 Kings 12, 16, it says, So when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? Neither do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, David. And so Israel departed under their tents. They're going to go right, they're going to bring that back up and throw it right in David's grandson's face. And so Judah's being defensive here is not good, especially because their justification isn't even true. What gift did we receive? Well, you did receive a gift. He promised to make a massa, your general, his general. So they had gotten special benefits. And so this concession that David made to get Judah back to his side, it was a mistake. And it laid the seed for future schism. Verse 43, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, you, you say he belongs to you? We got ten parts in Israel. Ten parts in the king. And we also have more right in David than you. Why then did you despise us that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king? Basically, they say, you know, and they say 10 tribes because Judah kind of absorbed the tribe of Simeon with their, because Simeon's land was like a little circle in the middle of all the tribe of Judah's land. So Simeon kind of got absorbed uh, with Judah. Um, but they basically say David is not Judah's king. David is Israel's king. His lineage, therefore, at this point is irrelevant, which means us being 10 tribes and you being one, we have more say than you do. 
So why do you despise us? The word there means to not even notify us. And you know what? If they had stopped there, I might have agreed with them. But then they assert this 10 to 1 dominance by saying, you shouldn't have not just notified us, but you should have let us make this call because you're just one tribe. Why they think that's how it should have been, I have no clue. You can't in one breath complain about being despised, then belittle someone else with your next breath. Two wrongs never make a right. That is something, by the way, that our country needs to learn. I'm going to stop there. And so it ends up devolving into a bullying contest, and it tells us Judah came out on top. And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. If I could describe our divided nation right now, it would be that's what everybody's trying to do. Our words are going to shut you up. And we're going to be fiercer than you. And everyone's trying to just keep up in the ante. You know what happens when you up the ante? You get a nation divided. Now, is that a good way to restart your kingdom? No. Which is why another rebellion occurs in chapter 20. So you got to come back next Sunday night to hear about that. So let's all stand. This whole mess was caused because David sinned and then God, you know, through the prophet Nathan told him, he said, listen, you're not going to have peace for the rest of your days. Your kingdom will always, the sword's always going to be a part of your kingdom. And David did experience that. There was very little peace in his reign from this moment, from that moment forward. And, and it just goes to show you that, you know, sin has dangerous consequences. And when you have responsibilities, you're a parent, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, your employer, you know, you, you lead something, you know, or you're a church leader, you know, your sin has bigger consequences. It has a wider effect, you know. And so, you know, it puts a challenging word to us that, you know, the best way to avoid being in this situation with David where you're trying to juggle all these things is, well, don't do what you did over there. And if you do, make it right and then commit to trust in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your understanding moving forward. David's trying to juggle Judah and all the other tribes and trying to lay these carrots out and trying to fix everything that he messed up when in reality some of these solutions end up causing deeper problems. If you've blown it in the past or you've you know, violated that responsibility or abdicated from that responsibility, own it and then start doing it God's way again. You can't fix the mess you made. Only Jesus can do that. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your great forgiveness when we make messes. But Lord, you know, we don't want to compound the problem by leaning on our own understanding and trying to fix the mess we made. Show us how we can be obedient to you, the active steps we can take to right the wrongs that we did. But Lord, give us the fortitude uh, to not compromise when it comes to just trusting you from now on, doing things your way from now on and not trying to run ahead or come up with our own ideas to, you know, to put all the patches on the holes that we, we tore. So Lord, if maybe there's some tonight who've got some situations where they've Maybe they've done that. And I pray you help them to rest in you and to trust in you and to be obedient to what you say in your word. Knowing, Lord, that even when we dig a really big hole and we really things look grim because of the mistakes we've made, knowing that you're so gracious and you're so kind, you can see us through it. Help us to trust you completely, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.